Today we are going to continue our series from the Psalm of Ascent. And we are in Psalm 122. The title of this morning's message is Entering the City of God. Entering the City of God. Before we get into a formal exposition and even before we begin to read the text, I want to explain some uh some of the background to you, and hopefully we can take something that's somewhat complicated in the world of New, uh, Old Testament scholarship uh, and, and make it simple for us to kind of comprehend and understand. So will you grab your Bibles or pull up on your electronic mobile device and, and turn with me to Psalm uh, chapter 122. Psalm 22, I'll give you uh, about 20 seconds to turn there. Psalm 122. Psalm 122. And most of your Bibles have a title that says, Let us go to the house of the Lord. And so background-wise, before we read this text, is that the house of the Lord was symbolic of God's presence. The house of the Lord throughout the Old Testament would be a representative of wherever you go to worship the Lord because you long to be in His presence. But eventually, the house of the Lord would be known as the temple. The temple of the Lord would be the place where God would choose to say, okay, God is, God is, uh, everywhere. He's everywhere at once. He is, uh, he, you cannot contain Yahweh in any human structure, but it's just symbolic. It's just a building that symbolizes that if you go to this place, this is where God will meet you. Right? And so that's the house of the Lord. But here's what's tricky. If you look at your Bibles, uh, most of your Bibles have a subheading that says, A Song of Ascent of David. How many of you guys, your Bibles have that? All right. So as an interpreter, you assume that David wrote this. But here's a tricky situation. Here's the problem. Most scholars will say that David did not write this. Instead, like all of the Psalms of Ascent, this was written by a pilgrim, a Jewish pilgrim, Years, years and years after the time of David. And so this would probably be during the time of return from Babylonian exile, where every year the Jewish pilgrims are taking that journey into Jerusalem, and they're going back to worship, and they're envisioning what's, what's beautiful about what Israel used to be and what Israel will be one day, right? So why would they attribute this psalm um, of David. And we're a conservative church, okay? So I think it's okay to say David saw, David envisioned, because it says it right here. So this is how we're going to understand it this morning. The reason why this Jewish pilgrim says, who wrote this, says this is of David, is because you're going to see, as soon as we launch into this, is that he's writing this saying, this is what David envisioned. This is what David wanted. I'm going to show you why this was written after David, okay, before we even read it. So as we read it, you're reading with understanding. But look with me at verse 1. Psalm 122, verse 1, it says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. When David was still living, the house of the Lord was not constructed yet. It was Solomon, David's son, that built the temple. But we know this much. That David's heart longed for the house of the Lord. David was the one who said, Father, look, we all have our houses, but 
but you don't have a house of your own. And so he says, Father, please, Yahweh, let me build a house for you. So David envisioned a city where, where God, Yahweh, would have his own house. Because in David's time, you know what the house of the Lord was? David was the one who, after a battle and warfare, he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And he chose the city of Jerusalem to be the city where Israelites would all gather together. And they would all worship God. And they would come to a place where the Ark of the Covenant was in a tent. But then, obviously, his heart was to build the temple. But in, in David's time, there was not actually a formal house of the Lord. Okay, And then when you look at verses, uh, when you look on and you look at verses verses 3 to 5, you look at verse 4, it says, to which the tribes go up, and the tribes of the Lord uh, was, was decreed for Israel. And this was a place where the tribes would go and worship together in unity. But in David's time, there was actually a feud. There was a battle. There was a battle between the tribe of Judah, which is David's family line, and the tribe of Benjamin, which is Saul's family line. And we know there was a battle between King Saul versus King David. There was a rivalry. And we know that David was the man after God's own heart, and Saul was the one who went against God's will, ultimately. And, and so even the vision for unity of the tribes was something that David longed for. And I believe that towards the end of David's life, he was able to pull Israel together temporarily. But we know that's just temporary, because after Solomon's time, David uh, I mean, the, the, the nation of Israel was, was divided again. And then you look at verse 5. It says, the thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. It would be kind of weird, right? A little egotistical for David himself to say, yeah, the thrones of my house to be set. Right? So this is actually written by someone envisioning, looking backwards, so, wow, look at what David established, and we're hoping that this will come again. We're hoping that one day, because this is post-Babylonian exile, that one day we would be able to walk into Jerusalem and once again we would remember the days where the thrones of judgment, where justice was upheld because of the house of the Davidic kingship. So once again, this is a Jewish pilgrim writing from the, through the Spirit and inspired to write, expressing David's spirit, express, expressing what David envisioned. Now, with that background and that insight, let's read, and you'll have much more understanding. Okay, let me read this to you. The psalmist writes this, Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord that was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. The thrones <clears throat> for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. Verse 6, pray for the shalom, for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you, Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace, which in the Hebrew, shalom, be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. May God bless the reading of his word. So this leads us to four things. The psalmist shares with us four 
things that David envisioned and four things about the city of God that he himself longs for, that he envisions to return to, that he wants to see, the psalmist. Four things that David envisioned and four things that the psalmist now years later envisioned that this would be what David wanted in the spirit of David. So notice the first one. Point number one is a vision of worship. The psalmist envisioned a place where Israel would go, a city of God, a city where Israel might be scattered at this point. Israel is everywhere, but where is a place where they can go up to and find God's presence? And then notice verse 1, he says, I was glad. This, this talks about joy. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. In other words, if the house of the Lord was a place where you would gather to worship, and one day it was the temple, temporarily, a, a Solomon's glorious temple, the, the, then this is all about worship, because worship is what happens in this city. Worship is what happens when you draw near to God's presence, and worship is what happened in the temple. And so it's a vision of worship. It's the, it's this idea of worship worship that brings joy. You find joy with God. Joy comes from the source of joy, Yahweh, God. God is the giver of joy. So when you are in close proximity to the source of joy, then you receive true joy. And the psalmist understands this, that if I can go to the house of the Lord, oh boy, I am overjoyed. I am glad. There is gladness at the gravity of being drawn near to the Lord, right? And then verse 2 Notice that it says, our feet have been standing. So if you're following the journey of the psalm of ascent, then you can kind of imagine that at this point, the psalmist envisions himself standing within the gates. He's not yet at the temple. He's just entered into the gates of the city. Oh, within your gates, oh, Jerusalem. And so for some of you in here, how many of you guys love Disneyland? How many of you guys love Disneyland? Anyone here? Uh, you know, for some of us, Disneyland's stressful. When I think of Disneyland, I think of I'm overpaying. <laughs> this is way too much. You know, the parking line is crazy. I got to get through security. And now that I push a stroller around, it's like war, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, I just, just got to get, you know, I can't believe it. a hamburger is $12 or, or $20, right? But, but I'm just kidding. I mean, Disneyland's a great place. But, but, but for some of you, you love Disneyland. You love Disneyland, you know, so. But then there's still stressful, right? You're going through the security, you know, parking first, right? And then, and then you, you go on the tram and then you get off. And, and, but then when you, you know, go through the ticket line, it's just this wonderful feeling, right? Because you, you go through the ticket line, you get in, you're in the gates. You're not yet in Disneyland. But as soon as you go in, you begin to hear the music. You, you might hear the, the train go by. You look up and you see the magic castle. And if you love Disneyland, then, Seeing that castle brings all of your memories back. Maybe some of you proposed there, right? So that's going to come, oh, I got engaged here. For some of you, you're like, you know, I, I have these great memories of, of a kid going into Disneyland. But just seeing that castle brings all these memories of joy. All these memories. And, and then what, what happens? You begin to anticipate. Oh, man, I'm going to get the fast pass. I got to go Tomorrowland first, right? Um, you know, I go frontier. I got to go here, here, Indiana Jones. You know, you you start getting. And for some of us, like me, you know, I'm like I'm start getting overwhelmed. <laughs> you know, start seeing the crowds and and. Uh, but but for some of you, you 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 get anticipation. That's what he's talking about. Okay, he enters the gates. 
He gets a vision of the house of the Lord. He's there to worship, and all the memories of the Davidic kingdom come back. All of the memories of Israel's good times come back. All of, of he, and he envisions, and you're going to see he envisions peace. He envisions tribes in unity. He envisions a time where Israel was strong. But most of all, he remembers where God was worshipped, where God was uplifted, where Yahweh was remembered. So, so that's the sensory experience, is that when he sees something, it brings worship to him and joy because it brings memories and anticipation. It helps him look backwards and forwards and forward. Right, helps him to remember and to anticipate the joy of worshiping. That what, what is going to happen? That's the attitude of coming into God's presence is that you thank God. So when we come to worship, what do we do? We thank God for who he is. We thank God for what he's done. And then we pray and we begin to say, God, will you continue to work? Will you continue to move? Will you continue to make disciples, right? And so, so it's all encompassing past, present, future. And that's what he's all, he's experiencing. And that's what makes him glad. It is this closeness to God. And so he envisions worship. Okay. That's the first point. Point number two. The second thing that he worship, that he envisions is a vision of unity. So the first thing you see is a vision of worship. The second thing is a vision of unity. A vision of unity. Look with me now at verse 3, starting in verse 3 where, we, where you see this, and we read this. But notice how he describes Jerusalem built as a city that's bound firmly together. Now, when you look at the original Hebrew, bound firmly together, this is like compactness. But there's a twofold meaning here. Back in David's day, Jerusalem was much smaller, right? Jerusalem expanded during Solomon's kingdom. But, but it was much smaller, meaning the houses were like compact, and because you're in this small city, you're going to get to know people. You're going to know each other, right? And so there's almost this unity. So twofold meaning. One, we're, we're, we're close together. We're all together in the same place, Israel. There's unity, okay? But, but because we're all together and we're all united by one God, we're all worshiping one God, we're all together, the enemies are outside, there's unity within the walls. That's his idea. So he's envisioning what David envisioned. David envisioned a united Israel. David envisioned a place where all of Israel would be united because David understood it wasn't about military conquest or kingdom. It was about one God, monotheism in his day. right? It was Yahweh that all the world must know that God is the Lord. That was David's Lord, and all of Israel has to know that we are united. We are all heirs of Abraham, regardless of what tribe you came from. And I believe it broke his heart when there was division and fighting within the tribes. And this is why David envisioned a place where we could all come together and worship and be united, despite the fact that we are different Right, so Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes, differences, distinction, not uniformity, right? Why God ordained for the different tribes, not uniformity, but unity. When you worship here in the English congregation, we are way more multicultural than we think because all of us come from different backgrounds, right? Different, I mean, I mean, even if, if the majority of you might be 
type of Chinese heritage, you might have grown up in a different part, or your parents are from a different part of, 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 of Asia, and, and you're a different type of Chinese, right? I'm using general terms. Um, and, then, and then after that, not everybody in here is Chinese in terms of heritage. But we all come together, and then we come from maybe different social economic backgrounds. I know that there's a predominant group here in Walnuts, but uh, Walnut, California, in terms of suburbia. But all of us come from a different place, right? So in some ways, we can say we represent different tribes. But what unites us, what unites us is the gospel of Jesus Christ, one God who, who is revealed as Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one scripture, the word of God, and a commitment to be a family of God. Right, so, so a lot of this, what you see is that David envisioned this. The psalmist longs for going back to this, and going to Jerusalem reminds him of this type of unity. The tribes, and notice that it says tribes of the Lord, not tribes of Israel. Do you see that? Do you see the key language in verse 4? To which the tribes go up. Go up. Why is it upwards? Why is it up? Because you're going up to worship. Not just you're, you're, you're going upwards towards Jerusalem, right? But you're going up to worship. And it says the tribes of the Lord, the tribes belong to God. And then it says, as was decreed for Israel, meaning decreed, God willed it in his sovereign plan that Israel would be united. They belong to him. And then it says to give thanks to the name, to the name of the Lord, Yahweh, because giving thanks is the heart behind worship. It's gratitude for who God is, what he does, what he will do, right? So worship is the key, and and, and you see all of this. Now, this leads us to point number three. So point number two, what we've seen in the first two points is the psalmist sees, he envisions what David envisioned, a city of God where there's a vision of worship, a vision of unity. But the third thing, point number three, is a vision of justice. A vision of justice. I already mentioned that there's different tribes. And, and, and if there's going to be unity, there needs to be justice. And so David was a good king. David was a king who wanted to reign over Israel, but not as a dictator. Not as a dictator. He wanted his courts and his kingship and his throne to justly dispense, or I, I should say dispense justice, to make just rule over people, to decide over different disagreements, like in a legal courthouse, but to do it in a way that would honor the Mosaic law and would honor the heart of God. And we knew that this was David, an imperfect person, but a man after God's own heart, a man who would want a kingdom that reflects the heart of God. And and in verse 5, it says the thrones, so this is the kingdom of David, the kingship of David, right? The, the family of David, the kingly line of David, the thrones, plural, not just one throne, right? But David and all of his sons, this is what David wanted and longed for, that their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. And the awesome thing about house of David is we know that, that God promised something to David about his house, that God promised to David in Second Samuel saying, saying, I'm going to make you a kingdom that's everlasting, that, that your kingdom is going to be forever. And so David, logically thinking, well, that's the only way that that's going to happen is if it comes through one of my sons, that one of my sons is going to have an eternal kingdom. And little does he know, because he doesn't know yet, that that's going to be the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, 
Right? Jesus Christ would come. And Jesus Christ would ultimately establish a justice that his heart longed for, that he couldn't see. Ultimately, it would be a son of David who comes and his throne of judgment would be set. And his throne and his house would be everlasting. And so this is a really short point, a vision of justice. So we've seen a vision of worship, a vision of unity, a vision of justice. But the fourth thing, point number four, the fourth thing that David envisioned and the psalmist envisioned was a vision of peace. And we see this in verses 6 to 9. Notice in verses 6 to 9, it says this, He prays for peace. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Now notice the peace is repeated again. Peace be within your walls. So within your city walls, let there be peace. And security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. So peace is repeated a third time. It says, for the sake of the house of the Lord, the place of worship, our God, I will seek your good. Now, here's some explanation, okay? The name of the city Jerusalem means city of peace. Salem comes from shalom in the Hebrew. So this is peace. Jeru is just some type of word that can mean city, you know, city or town or place. So this city being named Jerusalem was supposed to be a city of peace. What irony. Now, we all understand Jerusalem in history. It is ironic that the city of peace is one of the cities that goes down in history that has been the center and the target of the most violence and the most warfare throughout Old Testament history. And even in the New Testament, you know what happened to Jerusalem. And then even today in present, in present history, if you will, in, in current events, you know that Jerusalem is still not a city of peace. Daily, they're surrounded by warfare. And so what we see here theologically is that what David longed for and what the psalmist now in the spirit of David longs to go back to leaves our hearts begging for something that is future. Something that has not yet happened. A city of God that is not yet built up. A city of God where there would be shalom. A true and better Jerusalem that would truly be a city of peace. And, and that, that kind of gives us little hints of where the psalmist and through the, the Spirit's inspiration might be leading us, right? One pastor explains this concept of shalom, this peace, and it's deeper than just peace from warfare. He writes, quote, Shalom gathers all aspects of the wholeness that result from God's will being completed in us. It is the work of God that when complete, releases streams of living water in us and pulsates with eternal life. Every time Jesus healed, forgave, or called someone, we have a demonstration of shalom, end quote. And so what this pastor is saying is the true place and person that defines and fulfills shalom is Jesus Christ. Jesus is where we find the fulfillment. But to help you understand this, let me just break this down for you. Go back to the passage. Look at verses 7 and look at verses 8 of Psalm 122. Notice that three times 
the psalmist speaks of a type of security. Peace within its walls. Peace and security be within. This type of idea three times in verses 6 to 9. Look in your Bibles. Look at verse 7. Notice in verse 7, the psalmist prays for peace within your walls. So when you think of that, he's talking about peace within the city walls. Right? So if you're in the walls and the enemies are outside, if there's no peace outside the city, then he's saying, in the city, let there be peace. Because this is the city of peace. And that, that also includes the fact that there's no fighting among the people. So he's moving from the outside in. And then notice in verse 7, the second time, instead of peace, he uses the word security. You see that? So peace be within your walls. Security be within your towers. So now he's moving from inside the walls to inside the building. So he's saying, I would you know, he's praying for peace in the city. And now he's saying within the walls, within the buildings, the towers. So you can interpret that as, as people are having peace within the, each of their homes or within the towers. The leaders have peace, right? That there's walls. And then he moves inward into the inner person. Notice in verse eight, he says the third time, peace be within you. So you see the movement? Peace be within your walls. Security be within your towers. Peace be within you. Beloved, this speaks to all of us. We long for this. We pray for the peace of Los Angeles, right? Or you would say the United States or the world, right? But, but you pray for the city and you say, peace be with our city, within our city, within our civic life. Peace be within our homes, our structures, or, or for us, of course, our churches. And then because of that, because there's peace externally coming in, we, we say peace be within us. But we know that realistically, everywhere we look around, that we can't control what happens outside in the city, that there's going to be different forms of a lack of peace. I mean, whether it's violence or crime, we, we can't really control that. that, that sin is active and sinners abound. And we ourselves are sinners being sanctified. Right? We are saints now because of Christ being sanctified, though. So, so we know that sin abounds. But in our homes, we know that, that in our homes, we're constantly working through our maintaining relational peace, right? And so within our homes, we long for that type of peace and security. But then ultimately, the only security and peace that God promises that we can have for certain is this one, inside our hearts. And we know as Christians who believe in the gospel that this only comes through faith and a personal relationship with the Lord, Jesus Christ, right? He is our Lord and Savior. And so this is the peace within. Beloved, this is the peace that, that, that Johnny and Muha and the Lowe family cling onto and grab onto each and every day. We just prayed for them earlier, right? This is the internal peace that nobody can take away from you. This is the true peace. And so all in all, what we see here is that the psalmist is longing for a peace that does not actually come in his time, in his lifetime that David himself did not fully experience this peace, that, that the psalmist himself did not fully experience this peace, that this peace will only be experienced when the fulfillment comes through the Messiah, Jesus. Right? And then he wraps up in verse 9. Check out verse 9. Verse 9 is so powerful interpretively. Verse 9 is so powerful in terms of purpose. And so I want you to cling your hearts to verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. When he says, I will seek your good, some of your Bible translations say prosperity. 
Right? This idea of not just, oh, that's good. It's, it's good that the Raptors won because we don't cheer for the Warriors. I'm just kidding. There's some Warrior fans in here. Um, love you more than you know. Okay, but we don't cheer for uh, Northern California teams. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Love you guys more than you know. Okay, so we cheer for the Raptors officially tonight. Okay, but, uh, but, for, but for the sake of the house, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. It's, it's good. It's this wholeness. It says, I will seek your good, God's good. Right? So he wants to fight for, he wants to pursue, he envisions, he prays for this city of God. And he says, what's the motivating factor for your house, for God's house, for the place of worship, for this city? Why? Because he knows that if Jerusalem stands in his time, and if the temple and the house is there, then Israel will be united. He knows that if there is no place to gather, Israel will not be united. They will be scattered. He knows that they will fight, but he knows this much. Why does he long for the city? It's because whenever the Israelites obeyed God and sought the good of Yahweh, what happened? God fought for them, and they had peace outside the walls. They had peace within the walls. They had peace within their hearts. And they had unity. And they had justice. Why? Because they listened to the word of the Lord. But they knew, the psalmist knew, that whenever they disobeyed God, what happened? The walls come down. Enemies invade. Exile happens. Division among the people and fighting and no peace within. And so that's why his key is we need the place of worship because we need to be focused on the person of worship because it is only the person of Yahweh that unites his children. And if we stay focused on Yahweh, then we will have true security and peace. But in his time, it was a place and a location. In our time, it's different. That we don't go to a place per se, we go to a person who came and that person now lives in our hearts. Christ through the Spirit. So how does Psalm 122 apply to Christians besides motivating our hearts in terms of worship? It points us towards the true and better city of God, the new Jerusalem. Earthly Jerusalem then was imperfect, and even the glory of Solomon's Jerusalem and and Solomon's temple was only a temporary type of heavenly city and a temporary type of a place of worship. What the psalmist envisions and what David longed for was meant to point towards eternal worship, eternal unity, eternal justice, and eternal peace. And so let me break this down for you, right? Unlike the Old Testament saints, we go to worship the Lord anywhere and everywhere. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. You you go to the Lord where you are, if you have Christ, anywhere, and you say, God, worship. But it's good to come together. But you don't have to come in one place. You commit to a local church, but there's local churches across the world where believers are gathered, not just in Jerusalem. In every tribe, tongue, and nation, people gather to worship Jesus Christ. And we can do that because Christ unites us at the heart level. Meaning, the security has come within if you long for it. The peace has come within if you long for it. Because it comes through the person of Jesus. 
Right? And, and so Psalm 122 points us towards that. But also Revelation 21, 22. I, I put this one verse up on the slide for you. Revelation 21, 22. And it says this. Revelation 21 gives you this picture that after Jesus returns, there's going to be a new heavens and new earth. And there's going to be a new city of God coming down out of heaven onto the new earth. And in that city, notice what John saw in Revelation. It says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. The Lord is Jesus. So what the psalmist longed for, what David longed for is, Father, we know things are good when we're close to you. We know things are good when you dwell with us. We know we need you. So can there be a city where we can all be united, where we can be close to you? And he's like, I want to build you a house. And the psalmist is like, I long for the house of the Lord where his presence is. And revelation is, there is no structure. There is no house because the Lord himself is there. He's there. And because he's there, there's peace, there's justice, there's unity, there's everything. And so this is the new Jerusalem. This is the city of God that one day every single one of us will enter if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? We will enter into this city and we will be united in our worship and we will all sing songs giving praise to the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for our sins. It is all His glory and not ours. There will be no sacrifices, no more sacrificial system. We don't need to go back to it. We don't have it now. In eternity, the Lamb is there, the one who sacrificed for us. He is the fulfillment of everything the temple was meant to, meant to point towards. So all of this points us towards this future time of awesome worship in the person and the name of Jesus where we will have true shalom and true peace. So here's your big idea. The big idea this morning is simple. The psalmist envisions a place of worship, unity, justice, and peace that will be fulfilled through Christ in the new Jerusalem. The psalmist envisions a place of worship, unity, justice, and peace that will be fulfilled through Christ in the new Jerusalem. And in the parentheses, I, I highlighted that this is a big idea interpreted through the lens of a New Testament Christian having and access to your Bible and reading Psalm 122. When you are a New Testament Christian, you read Psalm 122 through the lens of Jesus Christ. And you can see the original intent of the author was the psalmist envisioned a place, simply, a city of God where there would be unity, worship, unity, justice, and peace. But as New Testament readers, we know that what he envisioned and what David longed for is fulfilled through the, through Christ in the New Jerusalem. And so applications, we already alluded to this, but two ways that this can practically applied, be applied right now is right now as we are gathered, we are here to worship God. And the first is the proper attitude of worship. The proper attitude of worship is coming in with joy, but coming in, we ought to seek justice and unity. We ought to come to worship with hearts along for unity, unity in our families, unity with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so even when we take the Lord's Supper, we say, hey, reconcile your relationships. Reconcile your relationship with God through the gospel. Reconcile your relationships with each other. Because the family of God 
When we worship, worship is more than just standing there singing a worship song. Worship is when we come together to worship, do we have the attitude that seeks peace and unity with one another? And and do we seek justice? Do we pray about things and do our hearts cry out for injustice in this world? And then do our hearts long for peace, not just security, but inner peace, right? Truly, do our hearts rage because, you know, we're, we're overwhelmed with anxiety because of the things of this world, or do we seek to have peace in Christ, right? And, and do we pray for that peace, right? So all of these things talk about what the church ought to typify, pointing towards the New Jerusalem. In the church, you have worship, unity, uphold justice and peace. You know, when, when we have conflicts with one another in the church family, First Corinthians says, how, how does justice get upheld? Right? Let's just say that one of you bumps another person's car and God willing it was an accident. Don't sue each other, right? That's what First Corinthians is saying. Is there a better way to uphold justice? Is there a way where we can rightfully pay for damages, forgive each other, recognize that it's an accident, and love each other and move on? And that's an example of what the church can uphold in terms of what, how do we deal with stuff that would naturally take place in the courtroom, right? So all of this you see the, that the church can uphold. The second application, Psalm 122 describes unity, justice, and peace, things that we can long for, but ultimately we have to be realistic, and I alluded to this. You know, beloved, this week, sometimes I, I don't check my phone uh, or I try not to throughout the day if I'm doing work and occasionally I'll look at it. But when there was a shooting this week, I believe in Virginia, I didn't know until like 8 or 9 o'clock at night because I hadn't checked my Facebook feed or my news feed. And I was, I was looking at emails, but no one sent me an email. And, and, and I was like, oh man, again, again, you know, again, there's, uh, it's a result of sin. It's a result of sinners, uh, just injustice in this world and warfare, you know, you read about, um, you know, war, you read about all these things in this world, and then you read about, you know, all, all kinds of other things, right, where, where it doesn't involve violence per se, but people ripping each other off and uh, people pressing down on each other and um, just greed, and, and then, you, then you read about people suffering through disease and stuff, and sometimes it's really hard to long for, to, to, to feel like you can be secure in this world. I think security is something we all long for, you see it in the heart of this psalm. It's something we all want. But I think what this Psalm 122 confronts us to say, hey, we can pray and, and we can do things to, to kind of long for security, but ultimately the true security that we long for requires dealing with sin and sinners. And there's only one person who does that, and that includes dealing with our own sin. And there's only one person who, who do, who, who's done that, and that person is Jesus Christ. So ultimately, our true security, our sure and steady anchor, is, is as, as well-meaning as, as people might want to provide security in this world, it's not going to come from this world. It may not come in our lifetime. And we want to make sure this morning that you have that security, and that security is Jesus Christ. So if you're sitting here this morning, if you don't have Christ, turn to him now. In a moment, we're going to take offering. Uh, and if you're a guest, please do not, uh, please, if you're a guest, we, we, we don't want you to give, you know. Um, you know, the finance team cringes every time I say that. But if you're a guest, please do not feel obligated to give. Okay? But in a moment, we're going to take offering and we're going to worship in a song. 
And if you don't have the security of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you this morning. I want to invite you this morning to surrender your heart to the Lord. Confess that you are a sinner in need of his grace. Repent, which means change. Ask the Lord, saying, Jesus, I believe that you died and rose again for my sin. And I want to receive you as my Lord and Savior. I want to surrender to you as Lord. I need you. I need you for, for all these things that this psalm talks about. And then afterwards, talk to the person next to you and tell them, hey, I pray that prayer. Will you guide me? Or come up and talk to, talk to one of us, one of, one of the pastors or one of me or myself. And we'd love to guide you through what it means to follow Christ. Okay, let's pray. Father, we know ultimately, Lord, that what the psalmist longed for when he envisioned the city of God can only be fulfilled through Christ and the New Jerusalem. But we know that the only way to enter the New Jerusalem is really through a relationship with you. So we want to pray, Lord, this morning for anyone in here who does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior. And maybe this is the first time they're hearing about Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to them the gospel that Jesus came and died for their sins. And he rose again. Help them to acknowledge their need for you, to confess that they are a sinner. Move in their hearts through the power of the Spirit, Father. Save them, rescue them. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would move in them then to talk to someone about that and to say, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to know what it means to follow him. I want to make sure that I truly understand what Christianity is about. Father, we pray that you would do this powerful work in the heart of the people in this room who you brought here who don't know you yet. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.